Welcome to Well Said, conversations with Wellington management investment professionals about the intersection of financial markets, geopolitics, and long-term investment research. I'm your host, Thomas Mucha. Today's topic is impact investing, how to use the power of financial markets and capitalism more broadly to drive positive change by investing in companies that are creating beneficial environmental and social outcomes. It's one of the more uplifting subjects you'll hear on this podcast, and we're thrilled to have Wellington's impact measurement and management practice leader, Oyin Aduya, here to help us understand impact investing, how and why we do it, and what role it plays across global financial markets. Oyin joins us today from London, where she's based. Welcome to Well Said. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, let's start at the very top. What's your definition of impact investing? I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, it's a great question to start with because there can be multiple definitions. So in my view, the most broad definition of impact investing is investing for market rate returns alongside measurable and positive environmental or social outcomes. And so for a company to fit inside an impact investing portfolio, you have to have done quite a lot of rigorous analysis to understand how the company's products and services act to address certain social or environmental goals. And this can be things like um, helping to improve access to quality healthcare or education, helping to green the grid and, and uh, boost alternative energy provision, um, or helping to increase financial inclusion in emerging markets. If your products and services align with achieving predefined impact goals, um, then your company can be a good fit in terms of an impact investing portfolio. So it's the best of both worlds. It's trying to get a return on capital, but create positive outcomes. It's trying to have your cake and eat it. Exactly. I think that impact investing is the most powerful where the achievement of those social or environmental goals is really wrapped up in what the company does. And I think you can really, I guess, harness power of capitalism, the power of markets, the power of the profit motive to try and drive these positive changes in the world. And so when you have impact really inherent in what the company does, you don't need to think about any sort of trade-offs between impact and return. They should be, if you've done your research right, one and the same thing. Right. So broadly speaking, from a firm perspective, why do we do this? I'd say thinking about the growth of impact investing over the last few years, I think there's been a realization that it's not just governments and philanthropists and charities that can help to solve the world's biggest problems. Right? The private sector has to play a part. If you think about the UN Sustainable Development Goals, 193 countries have decided are the most pressing ones that we need to solve. But the UN has said that there's a 2.5 trillion US dollar funding gap to achieve the SDGs. And so governments can't do that alone. The private sector has to be involved. So I think that's kind of one of the reasons why um, we do impact investing. Um, but the other reason is to make a financial return, right? A lot of the things which drive impact investing are big sweeping structural changes that we see in society, whether it be you know, trying to you know, solve or at least lessen the climate crisis, trying to reduce global inequality. If you have a product or service that makes profit and can address those problems at the same time, again, it's the best of both worlds. I think that's why we do it, to try and encourage the private sector to, to play their role in making positive changes that we need to see across society. Right. So in what ways does impact investing differ from ESG? Yeah, it's a spectrum when it comes to sustainable investing. And I'd say on the one hand, you have ESG, which is really about 
how a company does business. ESG can be applied to any company. It's about the environmental, social, and governance risks and opportunities. No matter what you do, you can always be better at you know, treating your employees well, making sure you have you know, an independent board of directors, making sure that you're managing your energy use as efficiently as possible, whether you're a clothing retailer or utility or a tech company, you know, ESG issues are gonna to apply to your business. Impact is a little bit more specific. It's not about how you do business, it's about what you do. So not all companies can be impact companies, but you can apply ESG to everything. And so that's kind of how I distinguish them in my head. The kind of simplified and short rule of thumb I have is about sales. If you're an impact company, more sales equals more impact. ESG is not really related to how much you sell. It's about what you're doing to achieve those sales. Great. So it's one step beyond. Exactly. Tell us a bit more about your career arc and how you ended up in this key position at Wellington. What was your path? You know, it's really funny because when I tell people my career path, it feels like it makes a lot of sense. Like, of course, you're going to end up here. But actually, at the time, it did not feel like it made sense at all. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I studied economics at the University of Cambridge. I was always really interested in economic development. I thought I was going to end up either working at the UNDP or, or World Bank. I started my career at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch in London in equity sales. But after a few years of that, I really felt like I wanted to do something related to emerging markets. And I just remember one of my clients saying to me, oh, the top line for all of these European consumer staple names is, is rubbish because it was the middle of the kind of European crisis. Everyone thought Greece was going to go bust. He said, the only ones that are good are the ones that have subsidiaries in sub-Saharan Africa, like Nestle Nigeria, Unilever in Nigeria, et cetera. You know, what's happening there? And he said, oh, you're Nigerian, you should know. And I thought, actually, I don't know. And as a firm, we don't know. And I think you probably should know. And so that's kind of where I started thinking about how can I get involved in African financial markets? And it was a very busy two years working as a sub-Saharan African economist where there was a lot of issuance coming out of the region at the time. It was fascinating. You would do these kind of crazy trips across the, the continent, like eight countries in two weeks to Cameroon, Ethiopia, and Nigeria. And I felt like it was personally quite a privilege to be able to learn about my own country, Nigeria, as you know, part of my role. It was great. Um, so I really enjoyed that. But I felt like I was still a little bit far away from where impact was happening. So that's when I started to think about impact investing and you know, really, it was building up, particularly in private markets, particularly in um, emerging markets. So I joined um, Leapfrog Investments, and then I joined the Impact team, really kind of doing IMM before it was called IMM, trying to assess kind of where there'd been, you know, good trends in terms of both impact and financial returns in the portfolio. So, yeah, each step kind of got me closer towards what I wanted to do. And coming to Wellington, it was just such a unique opportunity, I think, to be able to bring a little bit of my experience across public and private markets, across equity and fixed income, to a platform that takes sustainable investing and impact investing so seriously, has been doing it so well for such a long period of time. We're still continuously learning how to do this well. And I think just because of how people collaborate so well at Wellington, it's going to be a great place for me personally to kind of grow and learn and hopefully have a positive impact um, you know, across the firm and, and maybe even across the industry. So who do you think, or in your experience, who is seeking these investment uh, options? Is it tend to be younger uh, investors, millennials? Does it have to do with wealth transfer? Uh, is it other segments of investors? I mean, who's the who's driving the market right now? I guess is the question. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say in terms of who is in the market right now, it's a relatively broad church of institutions and individuals. So you have, you know, pension funds, insurance companies, asset managers, family offices. Um, you know, some foundations and development finance institutions. 
Um, so there's a relatively broad set of actors in the industry. But I do think you're right, it's the younger generations, it's millennials who are driving us towards thinking about you know, impact when we invest. And you just have to think about millennials that are set to inherit, I think, $70 trillion worth of, of wealth by 2030. And they just have fundamentally different ideas from their parents and grandparents as to how they want to invest their money, what they think their money can and should do, and even how they want to spend the money they don't invest in terms of what brands they support. And so I think that the younger generation have a much higher bar when it comes to investing their money and they think about the impact of their investment. Yes, they want to make financial returns and that you know has to be a key goal, but they also don't want to sacrifice kind of sustainability. And even more, they want to try and push positive outcomes through how they invest. And that conversation, I think, is constantly, constantly happening, and it's part of what is driving the market forward. It's interesting. In my research as geopolitical strategist, I spend a lot of time with policymakers, people in government, um, and you know, with younger people as well around the firm. And I do notice a, a different view that younger investors tend to have towards government in general. You know, why aren't governments sufficient to address the needs uh, of society? Or, or put another way, I guess, what can financial markets offer that political leaders or broader political contexts can't offer? That's a good question. I think that you're right that governments aren't sufficient. We have the numbers I, I mentioned from the, the UN saying we have this big funding gap, especially given that all the spending that's happened post-COVID, like it's just a question of the financial resources maybe aren't there to do the amount of spending that we need to reach kind of net zero by 2050 or to improve the kind of situation we have in terms of global inequality or access to, to basic services. So I think part of it is a financial issue. Um, but I also think there's an issue in terms of you know innovation. The private sector tends to be able to move faster. They can move more independently. Sometimes the private sector has to push forward and, and, and lead. Um, but that's not to be said that the government doesn't have a role to play. I don't think the private sector alone is sufficient to achieve the change that we need and to achieve the SDGs. They need that to work in tandem with government to get to where we need to go. And one, I think, really interesting example of this is the first SDG to alleviate poverty. A lot of impact investors are focused on investing in emerging markets and financial inclusion is a huge theme and impact theme for, for us at Wellington as well. And you have a lot of studies that show that one of the biggest determinants of poverty is your access to income generating opportunities, your ability to have access to insurance so that if you kind of fall on bad times, you have a safety net so you don't fall back into poverty. So you can really see how the private sector by you know, banking the unbanked, going into maybe areas where they haven't had access to financial services and, you know, giving access to those products. And that could be a huge benefit in terms of helping to alleviate poverty. But poverty is so multifaceted. Financial inclusion alone is just such a small part of that. Poverty incorporates trying to avoid hunger and malnutrition. It's about land rights and title rights. It's about fair access to resources. It's about gender equality. There's so many different aspects to poverty. There's no way that the financial sector, private sector, can solve that alone. Yeah, clearly there are plenty of problems around the world. There's plenty of opportunities to try to alleviate some of these issues. Uh, but I'm very curious in your views on how this shifting geopolitical backdrop, these increasing tensions, the amount of time that governments are now forced to spend on national security uh, and other issues related to this, how does this impact your thinking about the market opportunity for impact investing? I think there's actually some interesting, I guess, crossover topics between geopolitical concerns and, and impact investing. And I think one area where this really comes to the fore is, is climate adaptation. 
So of course we know that there's a climate crisis and there's so many people focused on trying to mitigate, to so try and reduce the amount of GHG emissions we put out to try and slow global warming. But across the world, national governments have to think about the safety and security of their people and their assets. And that can also include strategic assets. So I think adaptation and thinking about how we adapt to more extreme weather and to the effects of global warming is one of the areas where kind of impact and climate and national security really intersect. Yeah, it's certainly a big interest of my research agenda as well. Now, I'm, I'm curious, Oyen, there's a lot of opportunity out there, a lot of government, a lot of public companies. There's also the private market. And, you know, I'm interested in your views on the key differences between public and private market impact investing. It's a great question, especially since, you know, I spent most of my career working in private market impact investing. I can actually start with some of the similarities, which is, you know, the overall goal of impact investing, whether it's in public or private markets, is essentially to lower the cost of capital for companies who are solving these kind of key social and environmental problems. And that is the standard, whether you're in the public or private markets, you'll want these companies to scale and grow faster so they can do more good more quickly. I think the main difference between them is probably the effect that you can have on the company as an investor. And of course, this is a generalization. It depends on kind of the type of private equity investing you're doing or, or private credit. But in general, if you're a very active investor on the private side, you could have an observer seat on the board. You could be on the board. You can be a lot more vocal in terms of talking to management, trying to direct strategy or think about new products or new markets, which of course help to make the company money first and foremost, but can also help to drive impact. And so in that sense, private market impact investing has more direct investor additionality. But on the public side, there's still a lot that you can do as an investor. You may not have a seat on the board. You may not have kind of the ear of the CEO in the same way that you would have in a private company, but you can still engage on the issues that you think are important. So for example, helping companies to come up with a credible, transparent narrative on how their products and services you know, lead to better social environmental outcomes can be, I think, a real value add for them because it allows them to tell their impact story more clearly. So I think engagement there can also be very important. But what I would say is that in general, in public markets, the additionality, um, and let me kind of break down the jargon, which is an impact we think about additionality as what is happening through your investment or through the products and services that this company is producing that drives impact outcomes that are different from what have, would have otherwise happened, right? So what's the counterfactual? What are you doing that's different from business as usual? In private markets, the additionality is really about you as an investor. In public markets, the additionality is much more about how is the company itself driving the change at enterprise level additionality rather than investor level. So those, I think, are the main differences. But I would reiterate that the overall goal is the same. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction there. Now, obviously, measurement of this is important. So I have a couple of questions about how we think about how to put some numbers to, to these issues. So I guess first, what qualifies a company um, as impact? What are the steps that we go through? Yeah, again, this depends on you know the asset manager and on the fund. But I would say more broadly, particularly looking at our public market impact investing strategies, we have three criteria, materiality, additionality, and measurability. The materiality means that at least 50% of the company's revenues have to be aligned with one of our impact themes. Secondly, additionality, which is what I mentioned before, and this is at the enterprise level. What is the company doing that's different from its peers to drive impactful outcomes. And normally this is related to either cost or innovation or scale. So I'm providing, I don't know, educational services online instead of in person, and that's at a much lower cost, so it increases the amount of access. Or 
by making components for solar panels, which use a lot less water intensive processes than the next best alternative. And therefore I'm contributing to both alternative energy and also resource efficiency. So trying to understand what is different from this company versus others. And then lastly, measurability, and that's where my team comes in. We have to have a KPI defined upfront that we can track over the life of the investment that will speak to the ultimate impact we think the company has. And that's super important because without the KPIs, we're kind of just telling my story. We want to be able to, as much as possible, have data behind the impact we think our companies have. So what does that mean? That means a lot of work on my side. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big challenge um, and it takes a lot of work. I always think that I say to people, impact investing is standard investing, but with a whole other layer of work and diligence and monitoring on top of it, because at the end of the day, you have to make the financial return, you just have to have the impact return as well. And so it means really that we go through every single issuer, go through their reporting, go through what they disclose and try and understand, okay, what are they reporting that we can link to the ultimate social and environmental impact? And sometimes it takes work on our side to do transformations of data or to do extra research, like drawing from the academic literature or drawing from a kind of third party research that kind of shows the impact that we want to have can actually be met through this company. What are some of the challenges here on the measurement side? I think the impact measurement part of it is challenging for quite a few reasons. I think the first is that the impact metrics as they stand right now in the industry tend to be quite bespoke and bottom-up. And of course, at Wellington, we're kind of a bottom-up fundamentally research-driven firm, so it kind of plays to our strengths. Um, But at the same time, it means that you have to spend a lot of time for every individual issue in your impact fund thinking, what is the KPI? How am I calculating it? Can be quite involved. And then it creates an issue in the kind of broader industry point of view, because if you are, say, an asset owner, investing in multiple different impact funds, they may all be coming out with different impact metrics. So how do you compare impact in one fund to impact in another if they're all measuring different things? You know, if you're looking at a standard fund manager, you can say, this is how many years they've beaten the benchmark. This is their IRR. In impact, there's no such kind of benchmark to be able to say, be able to say this is how good a fund manager is at creating impact so that measurement piece of it as much as it's good to be as detailed as possible that detail can often create problems when you're trying to aggregate data even within funds let alone across funds so that is the challenge that we have to kind of face but i think that the industry is moving towards a a better place so we do have some frameworks and, and standards which are coming up and being commonly accepted so one of those is the iris plus system of metrics that is backed by the Global Impact Investing Network. It's essentially just like a long list of metrics that says, you know, if you're looking at alternative energy, why don't you measure GHG emissions avoided or reduced? If you're looking at affordable housing, why don't you measure units built or families housed? And so it just encourages people not to keep on creating lists of metrics just because they can, but to say, given that I'm investing in this sector, which is, um, you know, in this impact theme, let me see what others are tracking and try and kind of align with that. Similarly, you have the impact management project, which is a very useful framework thinking about the different dimensions of impact. So, you know, what are you trying to do? Who is it affecting? What are the risks that the impact may not be achieved? So, again, there are ways in which we can try and kind of consolidate how we measure impact, but it is a challenge, I I will say. So there are standards developing around these measurement principles. You know, you mentioned KPI a couple of times. Can you define what that is for, for our audience and you know, why it's so important? Sure. So the KPI is the key performance indicator that we allocate to every single impact issuer. The idea is that we, you know, have a very 
know, heavily research-led um, approach that says, for example, we are investing in affordable housing because we know that there's a housing shortage in, you know, in the UK or in the US or in India, for example. And we have a lot of academic research that shows that if you give people, particularly those from lower income communities, access to affordable housing, it can have a whole raft of social benefits, which are individual in terms of you know, more disposable income, better educational outcomes, or even kind of community stability benefits. So we know that this is a good idea to invest in this sector. We want to be able to track the actual impact that these companies are having, and that's where the KPI comes in. So we can talk about this is how many units of affordable housing have been built per year. Or this is the price differential from a person who is living in an affordable housing unit versus living in privately rented accommodation, for example, how much money are they saving per month or per year? And that can be the impact KPI. So it's really about trying to put data behind the assumption, really, that we're doing good through the investments that we're making. And it sometimes can be quite straightforward. So I'd say the affordable housing one is something which is a little bit more easy to understand. But, you know, it can be very involved if you think about a generic drug manufacturer, for example. You know, the real benefit that we're trying to capture through a generic drug manufacturer that's making drugs which are cheaper than the branded version, which increases access to affordable medicine, which should increase you know, healthcare outcomes. The real benefit is, you could almost say, is the increase in you know, quality life years experienced by people who have access to that medicine that they maybe otherwise wouldn't have. Now, that is very difficult to put a number on, right? It requires a lot of assumptions and you know, you could do it with a lot of modeling, but you can't do that for a whole portfolio of companies. And so, you know, we can think about a proxy. You maybe can't measure the extra life years afforded to people who have access to that medicine, but we can measure the cost differential. We can say this medicine is 10, 20, 30% cheaper than the branded alternative, and this is how many people are buying it, and therefore this is the overall cost saving to those people who can have access to the medicine. That's the kind of work that the impact measurement and management practice does to try and support our investors in tracking the impact of, of their investment. So obviously a lot of creative thinking, a lot of communication with investors across the firm. I'm curious, could you tell us more about who you collaborate with um, across Wellington? Yeah, it's actually been really great to be part of a firm which is so collaborative. I've come from firms where I'm the only impact person or I'm part of a relatively small impact team. And so it's really great to be at a place where you know, you're not working alone and you have a lot of people who have input into your process. And so, you know, first and foremost, the impact management and management practice is here to support the investors to make sure we can track the impact of their portfolios and help them as they're thinking about, does this company belong in my portfolio? You know, I'm there as a resource to help them to research, you know, does this fit or, or does it not fit? And so that's kind of one of my primary roles. But there's also a lot of the work that I mentioned around getting those KPIs. So it's not just kind of scanning sustainability reports and disclosures, although that is a part of the role, but thinking, you know, where that data doesn't exist, working with, um, you know, the scientists we collaborate with at Woodwell, working with our climate research team, working with the global industry analysts and the ESG analysts to really try and come up with, you know, is this a sensible assumption? Do these numbers look right? Because at the end of the day, I think the most important thing when you think about impact measurement is transparency. We know that it's very, very difficult to get the exact right KPI that you need. Really, all we're trying to do is get the best possible proxy and to be able to have kind of a whole wealth of resources at the firm who can tell you whether your, your assumptions make sense or not has been, yeah, really invaluable to me. Yeah, the University of Wellington is a, is a fun place to be. Um, you know, oh, yeah, and you've mentioned a couple of times, you know, um, private experience, public experience, 
And also your experience in emerging markets. You sort of have this perfect Venn diagram of experience. How does your background in EMs inform your views on these issues? I think having had experience working with investors in, in EMs for probably the majority of my career, it has really taught me that there aren't always clear-cut answers, I think is the easiest way to put it. So I spent a big part of my career on the South side as a sub-Saharan African economist. So I'm looking at African sovereign credit. Um, and then on the private investing side, worked at funds who were doing growth stage investing in both Africa and Asia. And so kind of getting a good understanding of how emerging market economies are and how they intend to develop, I think has really thrown up difficult issues. So what's something that comes up very often is the tension that you sometimes get between environmental and social goals and outcomes, right? So you have a situation currently where there are hundreds of millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa who do not have access to electricity. And we know that access to electricity is one important determinant of development, whether that be um, the ability to, you know, build a manufacturing base or just the ability to be able to light your home and, you know, cook without using kind of dangerous fuels, for example. It's a really important basic service to be able to have. But you have this strange tension where a lot of impact investors see emerging markets and think about electricity access and you know, all they want to see is solar, which is a great, um, a great distributed solution in economies where the grid may not be up to scratch. But the reality is that the fastest and most effective way to get people connected to the grid, to electricity, is through the grid. And so if you're looking at a country, say, like Ghana, where they have, you know, gas produced, you know, could a gas-fired power plant be an impact investment? But of course, it's a fossil fuel. It's creating environmental pollution, contributing to global warming through greenhouse gas emissions. It's not good for the environment, but it's probably less polluting than the next best alternative. And it creates a whole plethora of social benefits, which I already mentioned. And so trying to have those conversations to understand really the net impact, trying to net environmental against social outcomes, that is not an easy thing to do. But when you're thinking about emerging market investing, these are the conversations that you have to have. And so I think EM investing has taught me that you know, you have to be quite specific about what it is you're trying to do, follow the data and not what people kind of want to see or think impact should be, and, and really understand what's happening on the ground. I think that's the key lessons I've learned from, from being involved in, in EM investing. Now, obviously in EMs, but also globally, past couple of years have been rather extraordinary in terms of what's happening around the world with the global pandemic, the economic and macro impacts of that. And now we have this, this continuing war to deal with, with refugees. And of course, climate is on top of all of that. How have the past two years impacted your research process? I mean, are you thinking differently about the world given the intense challenges that we've seen? I think so, yeah. I think that in impact investing, we can sometimes be guilty of maybe being a little bit too philosophical or thinking a little bit too far into the future. Of course, we have these huge structural issues which are going to take a long time to solve. And really, a lot of them require huge policy and sea change to be realized. And I think when you have such immediate and pressing concerns, like the pandemic, like a war, you have to think not just about where we're going to be in 10 years time, but where we're going to be in two years. What I would also say is that what's happened over the past few years, particularly with the pandemic, I think an increasing expectation of what people think private sector actors should do and, and they should at least not make some of our biggest social problems worse if they can't contribute to making it better. So whether it's, you know, more consciousness of global and local inequality, you know, 
the understanding of how urgent the climate crisis is, you know, the fight for racial justice. There's so much more things which are, I think, front and centre of people's minds like they weren't before. And to be able to channel that into how you invest, I think, has been a big change. And so that kind of really affects how I think about impact investing day to day. I've seen that firsthand in my research process as well. Crisis is clarifying, whether it's a pandemic or a conflict or you know, the, the long-term impacts of climate change. The dialogue with policymakers has certainly become more urgent as well. So wrapping up here, if you weren't doing this job for Wellington, you know, what else might you be doing with your life? I think if I could do anything, I would probably want to be a musician. <laughs> I love music. I used to play piano in a jazz trio. I used to do gigs in and around London. And if I could make a living doing that, I would just, I would love to just do that. Just play music, tour around, maybe record a few albums. That's what I would love to do. Who's your favorite jazz pianist? That is a very tough one. I'm going Monk. I'm going Oscar <laughs> Peterson. I'm going Bill Evans. I was going to say Bill Evans, but you know what? I don't even have a favorite jazz pianist. I have a favorite jazz bassist. Her name is Esperanza Spalding. Um, oh, yeah, of course. Um, she's incredible. And I have to say, I, I really love her music more than any of my favorite pianists. <laughs> Our next podcast, you and I are going to do it, will be about jazz. Well, Oyun, we're certainly grateful that your path did lead here. And thank you so much for your time and your expertise today and helping us understand this really interesting and really important topic. So thank you. Pleasure. The Well Said Podcast is produced by Wellington Management. The executive producer is Kristen Ganong. Our senior producers are Mark Murphy, Dana Wickstead, and Colin Hopkins. Our sound engineer is Mark Murphy. This episode is mixed and edited by Mark Murphy. You can find this episode, as well as others, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All investing involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Past results are not a reliable indicator of future results. Forward-looking statements should not be considered as guarantees or predictions of future events. This material was current as of the publication date. Wellington assumes no duty to update the content in the event that the information changes. This commentary is provided for informational purposes only. It is not research that is required to be prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, and it is not subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. It should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation and is not intended to constitute investment advice or an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to purchase any securities. It does not take into account the investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of any particular person. Wellington Management does not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. The views expressed are those of the speaker and may not reflect the views of others at Wellington. This recording may not be reproduced or distributed in whole or in part for any purpose without the express written consent of Wellington Management. Please refer to the disclosure section of this podcast for complete details.